Welcome to The Deal with Yield, your podcast series covering the issues that matter most in crop production. I'm Joel Whipperfirth, Director of Digital Transformation for Winfield United. And I'm John Zook, agronomist for Winfield United. Joel, as we're thinking about preparing fields for next year, what really comes to mind for you? Well, making sure that we get the crop out of the field in a timely fashion is what really comes to mind, first of all. But the minute that that crop is out, all the soil preparation starts. And I start to think about sizing the residue, making sure we've got soil samples out there if you didn't do a spring soil sample, and then going after tillage. Those are kind of the three big tickets for me. I agree with you 100%. But for me, at a more broader perspective, what is the most important thing? Everything that you said there, we're getting ready for next year's crop. So the seedbed prep the fertility prep. It's next year's crop. A lot of times we're kind of zoomed into, okay, we got the crop out. Now let's go in and till it. Well, why do we till it? Because we need to have it black. Well, why do you need to have it black? Because for next year's seed bed prep. So sometimes, in some cases, maybe we don't need it black, depending upon our area. But in other cases, we do. So having those conversations, what outweighs it? If you got too much moisture, does making it, does tilling it with too much moisture still make it beneficial for spring if you got basketball sized clods that you have to deal with when you're putting the seed in the ground? So, when I really boil this down to what can we do for next year's crop, it's seedbed prep. Anything we do in the fall is top of mind seedbed prep. So, harvesting and standing water and cutting ruts in the field, is that considered seedbed prep? Well, so then it all depends. It all depends on how we go back and fix that. So one of the conversations, and you mentioned it, compaction. Well, so there's three forms of compaction. What are the three forms of compaction? Uh... These are Zook's three forms what, of compaction, by the way. Yeah, I'm not sure if say, you can find this in a textbook. I'm not sure that this was in the uh, the compendium of uh, soil compaction in my soil science class in college. What are your three versions of soil compaction? So I kind of split them up in three forms. Is we have planter or seedbed compaction. So shallow. Shallow compaction, yep. Surface compaction would be another term for it. Then we have tillage compaction. Right. So that would be the smearing of if you're tilling when it was too wet, even if you're ripping, whatever, it's that smearing effect that you get the plow bottom layer, everything that you get with that compaction. And then we have the weight compaction. So that's simply combine, grain cart, anything that's heavy going over. And that weight compaction that goes deep is probably the hardest to overcome. And very falsely understood of, hey, if we get a really cold winter with some deep frost, that'll fix a lot of that compaction. Remember, we need the freeze-thaw cycles to fix that compaction. So it might take multiple winters of cold temperatures to fix that deeper compaction. So really, those types of conditions, the standing water, the cutting ruts in the field, are probably, in my mind, the most detrimental as far as a compaction because it takes longest to be fixed. So at the Western Minnesota Research Station at Lamberton, there is a compaction study that uh, that's going on probably its 25th or 30th year at this point. And they had run 15, 20, and 30-ton axle loads across those. And it's really interesting to see that 20 years after they drove a 20-ton axle across that field, they can still see yield drag in those particular plots. So as you're thinking about this weight compaction, let's break that down a little bit. Do you recommend controlled traffic areas? How do you go about reducing your compaction from weight? So this kind of goes back to maybe a similar spring conversation that I know you and I have had in the past, but 
Where does the smartest guy in the operation get put? <laughs> I don't know that answer. Probably in the grain cart. Okay. Okay. So thinking about the control traffic, I'm a really big proponent on that, is making sure that you're taking not the shortest path back to the truck, but the same path and the shortest path to that same path. And so sometimes that's pretty complicated. A lot of times understand you're probably not going to have a full grain cart because sometimes that means turning the grain cart around when it's half and taking the right path back. I get a lot of, well, if I do that, I'll have yellow tire tracks going through the middle of my field three different ways next year. And of course I'll have compaction. I'll be able to see it. And what I normally say is, would you rather have three sets of tire tracks going different ways to reach your field drives or tire tracks across the whole field and not ever realize that you have yield loss from the compaction because you're really covering a lot of those compaction areas multiple times and you can't visually see that. Remember, 80% of the compaction occurs the first time you cross that ground. So it takes severe compaction to actually see it visually, but 80% of it is already done that first time you cross. So that's weight compaction. You know, the planter compaction from this spring, a lot of that can be done by fixed up by light tillage, can it? Well, and I think a lot of that, hey, it kind of disappears as the season goes on. So that fixes itself, especially, this might be a sore subject, but these timely rains we've been getting actually probably saved a lot of the planter compaction symptomology that I was expecting to see based on how the spring shook out. So I was expecting to see a lot of rootless corn, a lot of sidewall smearing, a lot of tomahawk root symptoms. But because we were consistently wet, we maybe didn't have our roots go deep, but they're definitely able to go through some of those tougher areas because that soil never dried out and became like a cinder block where that root could never penetrate through. So a lot of times the planter, the smearing, really only shows up for that season. And sometimes if the season is right, it can probably just fix itself. Which brings us into the last one, which is smear from tillage. And I think this is a place, you know, certainly there's no-till out there, fields, and, and they rely on that freeze-thaw cycle during the wintertime to break up any compaction. But I find some guys like to run their tillage a little bit shallower when it's wet, and then if it is dry, they'll run it a little bit deeper. But if it's wet, if, you know, and I know some parts of the country are going to be facing some wet fall tillage, should you delay your fall tillage or should you go into spring tillage? So... I guess it's hard to say without having that scenario presented in front of you. But if it's wet and you're out there pulling up mud and you're running through with the digger, I'm not sure that you're doing much good. You're taking maybe the what you thought was weight compaction and just smearing it all over and really probably not doing much of anything out there. So... As much as I know in some areas, we like to have darker soil so we can warm up quicker in the spring. We can get better, faster snow melt. I think that even a spring tillage in those cases is probably better. And remember, with the goal in mind that you're just prepping the seed bed, if you didn't go out there and do a bad job or a poor job of tillage in the fall, do you really have that much that you have to fix next spring? Or could you just uh, go through with a couple light digger passes, make a good seed bed, and you're probably going to be better off than never doing anything with your weight compaction plus smearing it with your tillage. So think away those odds a lot. And I think it's more about seed bed prep. So if you can get a better seed bed prep in the spring, I'd probably hold and wait for a spring tillage. Yeah, so before you get to the tillage piece, there's this one piece that we've got to do first, and that's taking a soil sample. I know last fall was a bit of a challenge across the country. I know uh, as I talk with ag retailers, not all the fertilizer went out. And so this year's crop may or may not have gotten that fall adjustment that it normally gets. How are we best suited to assess our P and K levels in preparation for a good year next year? So I think the 
on top of a consistent soil sampling program. So say, hey, if, if you missed a year where you didn't get a soil sample or maybe you did get a soil sample, you just didn't get the fertilizer spread, I think you can still use those soil samples, but go back and look at what did you take off for yield. And we have a bunch of different pieces of information that can help you determine removal rates plus what that soil sample is. You can look back at the history and probably get really close to still fine-tuning a recommendation for that crop. One way to maybe prevent getting pinched in the future of that fall, like can I get the fertilizer spread because I'm waiting for the soils to come back, is I know a lot of them are starting to switch to a spring or summer soil sample. And what I'm finding is that is it's going to be a little bit different as far as the results you get back in the fall. But the reason it's going to be different is because we have way more consistent moisture and the timing isn't going to be as rushed as when we get to the fall, we got to get the soil sample to make that wreck. We'll have some time to bounce back ideas to make that plan with our growers and make those recommendations when they come time to the fall. So now we can get out right after that combine leaves before that tillage pass or whatever else comes in to make sure that fertilizer spread timely. You know, you talked about the, the difference between a, a fall sample, a spring sample, a summer sample. One of the places I look for sample consistency is the organic matter should be pretty steady uh, year over year. Yep. The CEC should be pretty steady. Phosphorus shouldn't change too much on there. But when you talk about that, the main reason, the main culprit, our favorite nutrient, potassium, is the one that y- you want to go after consistency. So switching from you know 20 years of fall sampling to going to spring, you can make the switch. Just switch and commit to where you're going. So... I wasn't going to bring that up, but thank you for making it apparent to me that I maybe said that, hey, fall is different than spring, and I didn't give good reasons why, and that's exactly why. We know in the fall, it's proven, there's data out there that if we get a dry fall, our potassium levels change versus if we get a wet fall. What we gain in the spring is typically our moistures are more consistent from year to year to year. So typically what we do see with those samples coming back in the spring or summer is we actually see increased levels of potassium because our moistures are typically a little bit more. We get most of our spring rains come through. And so that'll give more potassium in the soluble fraction. And so our K levels will come up a little bit. But again, it's just a matter of having, looking back and saying, okay, let's commit to this spring. And if you're consistent with that, you're still making your recommendations based on the guideline of the sample going up or going down in relative to where you started. And like you said, you can always check back to say, is this sample right? Because you'll know if the organic matter is way off or if the pH is way off that in the CEC is way off that, hey, maybe you need to check it for a resample or not. But yeah, the initial change from fall to spring might be a little bit of a shocker to see that K level come up to higher than you've expected it to see before. Now, does a, a wet K test reduce that variability versus a dry K test? You know, probably the majority of soil sampling is done by drying the sample, grinding it, and then processing it and doing the chemical analysis. But does a wet test offer less variability because they're doing a wet processing? Are you forcing me down into a rabbit hole <laughs> well, to just... talk about potassium management in a uh, how do we prep our fields for next year conversation? I just know somebody's going to ask a question about which soil sample to take. So so we do have an episode that we did with uh, Brad from Solom. So I would encourage anybody to go back and listen to that episode because I think we kind of hashed that out. But yes, so I think the answer to that is if we're sampling and we're sending off to a wet K, what we gain from that is we don't have to grind or dry that soil sample. So we're experiencing the soil moisture the way that it was taken. 
But the, still the thing that we don't gain from that, if we're sampling in the fall, you could take a soil sample when it's dry, send it in for a field moist. So the correct terminology is not wet K, it would be field moist because that would represent the moisture you would take in at that field. So it still could be dry in the fall or it could be wet in the fall. Spring gives you more consistency all around. Either method though, whether you're using dried grind or the field moist testing is going to be more consistent with a spring sampling just because of the moisture. Okay. Well, that's good to know. All right. So moving into uh, fall nitrogen applications and timings. You know, I know this year we used field forecasting tool to bring our nitrogen recommendations forward. And I, I always find you're shooting blind to what your yield goal is and what that nitrogen rate should be. So how do you tee yourself up to optimize your nitrogen rate for the fall? So I'm going to back up a little bit because you rabbit hold me with the potassium. <laughs> what I really wanted to add on the fertility side, and this is going to tie into your nitrogen question. So to be fair, I think this will tie in nicely to that. What I really wanted to add with the fertility is sometimes, hey, we might miss that fertility application or that soil sample, but we can still take a tissue sample in season to get that report card. And we have a tool here that I've been using a lot this year, and I know maybe you have something to do with that tool as well called the Field Forecast forecasting tool, we could probably get a really good recommendation of the yield that's going to be taken away from that field prior to now harvest to put together a decent, say, combination of that removal. The thing that the tissue sample gains you that'll transition into the nitrogen recommendation is it gives you the ability to see other nutrients and how they will respond to each other. So I'm, th I'm thinking about things specific like nitrogen to sulfur, nitrogen to potassium, how does zinc bring more of those nutrients into the plant? I think that'll give you the recommendation that you might be looking for to say, okay, here's how many bushels we're pulling off, but how good am I? How good is the soil that I'm farming at giving those nutrients back? And that's what the tissue sample allows you to see. I mean, you can just spend $150, $200 an acre, put all those nutrients out there. But if you don't know how good and efficient your crop is at taking them back or your soil at giving them, a lot of times some of that money goes wasted. Maybe you don't need as much phosphorus. Maybe you need way more potassium. Maybe you forgot about sulfur and that's why you have to put on 200 50 pounds of nitrogen to get a 200 bushel corn crop. I mean, all those things really come to light with the tissue sample. And I think combining those two will allow you to get to a better nitrogen recommendation. You know, you bring up a good point there. Certainly, you know, the majority of the cost in, is in pulling the sample and then the taking of the sample through the chemical analysis. Actually, micronutrients don't actually add that much cost to, to a sample, but it's oftentimes one of the overlooked things that can really help you zero in on, on areas of the field that might be looking for, you know, not necessarily macronutrients, but micronutrients. Mm -hmm. So obviously zinc is one of those nutrients in a soil sample you should be looking at. How have yield levels required more zinc or how have you used a soil sample differently to make a fertilizer recommendation? So the micronutrient part on a soil sample is difficult, but if I do know that I, so let's just use zinc for an example. Zinc is immobile in the soil. So it's immobile in the soil and it's not mobile in the plant. So that means if I get zinc into the plant from the soil, it's going to go to the first place that it's deficient and it's not going to climb its way up the plant through that growing season in that actively growing region of the plant. So typically what I see when I have high testing zinc in the soil, most of the time I can maintain higher zinc levels in the tissue until I get to like a grand growth stage in, in corn, for example, where I'm just taking up so much nutrients and I'm putting 
on so much vegetative mass that the plant just can't keep up because the availability is, is limited. So that's where we would say, okay, oh, the foliar recommendation comes into play. But also what you see when you have those micronutrients in the soil is you gain efficiencies of the macronutrient uptake. So I can get, by having, again, zinc as the example, by having more zinc in the tissue, I automatically get more potassium, more nitrogen, more calcium, more sulfur. And so I get other nutrients kind of for free just by getting the small little micronutrients right. So I'm not sure if that really answered your question, but it's really important to understand when you get into micronutrients, are they mobile in the soil and in the plant? Because that'll tell you, hey, do you need to do a broadcast application or do you need to do a foliar application based on its mobility? So in the fall, are you more inclined on the zinc LS or the zinc sulfate, zinc 35% sulfate? So for me, zinc sulfate is just zinc that's going to be spread in the soil and it's going to build your soil test zinc. So if that's what you're after, if you have really low testing zinc soil, zinc sulfate is a great product. If you have medium testing soil or high testing zinc soil, just because you have in the soil doesn't mean the soil gives it back to the plant. So you got good soil tests, but that's where I would incorporate like a zinc LS or for the listeners, lignosulfonate LS, which is what we would call a complex. So that protects the zinc charge from being bound to the phosphorus and other anions in the soil. So it can become more mobile, move through the soil, grabbed by the plant and brought up to the plant. In all cases, I would still recommend a strategy of, hey, maybe zinc sulfate is cheap. Maybe LS is a little bit more expensive, but if you outweigh both of them and maybe do somewhat of a blend, you might get, hey, I can build my soil plus have a little bit of a fraction of mobile zinc to get into the plant. So I always say, hey, there's no sense of putting zinc out in the soil if your plant can't access it. doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much you have in the soil if you can't get it up. So LS is definitely a product that we should probably be taking more advantage of. That LS in the manufacturing process, they tamp that product down with a stamp and that generates some heat. And that's what creates that complex in there, not allowing it to take on other molecules and bind to be insoluble uh, or not, not plant available. So that's a little bit different manufacturing process to start out with. Yeah. And if you look really close at the granules, that stamp actually puts a LS with a trademark on the <laughs> each one of the granules. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. My vision's not that good. I may have to look under my microscope for that. So let's move into uh, nitrogen timing yes. applications. So we talked, I tried to steer you into nitrogen <laughs> applications earlier, but I find a lot of guys like to put a nitrogen, uh, anhydrous ammonia on. It's typically, you know, it's the first step in the manufacturing process for nitrogen. So it's oftentimes a lower cost product unless, you know, some things have trued up. But some people just like to apply uh, their base rate of fall ammonia. Mm -hmm. So I think when I think of nitrogen application, regardless of product or timing for that matter, I think soil moisture, soil temperature, and then is that nitrogen going to stay around? And so that comes to mind as a stabilizer, right? So those are kind of the three things that pop into my mind. Soil moisture first, especially for fall, because with anhydrous, we know we have to have the soil moisture about perfect. Most of the time it's overlooked. If it's too wet and you're not sealing, if it's too dry, you potentially could be losing some anhydrous up into the atmosphere. We never can measure those. So it's kind of just the unknown of like, hey, let's just make sure it's right. In a lot of cases, we're in a hurry in the fall, especially for late fall, because we're trying to beat a frost or trying to beat a weather event that's going to keep us wet for the rest of the season just because we don't have the crop pulling the moisture out of the ground anymore. So the moisture is probably top of mind for fall application. And then, of course, the temperature. 
I mean, temperature specifically responds to how quickly the soil can change that nitrogen into the mobile form. And if we get it changed into the nitrate or the mobile form, then we have potential of it either leaching or denitrifying and moving off depending upon our soil conditions there. So I guess those are kind of the two things that go hand in hand. Just like any fall prep, sometimes distributing out your workload that you've got some fields that you can get started on, that base rate of N and a couple fields that you can get started on with planting. Because I find even if you try to carry in hydrosomonia over into the spring, it always ends up being more condensed than what you want it to be. And that ideal 10, 12-day window in between application of ammonia, spring ammonia, and planting always seems to be a little bit more like 24 or 48 hours. And that, that can cause seedling damage. That can dehydrate that rooting zone for the plant as that ammonia band dissipates and seeks water as it does it. So I like to at least get a couple fields started and prepped for the year and ready to go. Yeah, absolutely. So the spring ammonia option is there definitely have a lot of risks to it. And there's more advantages with urea or UAN in spring than doing a spring ammonia versus the cost. There's other flexibilities you can add with the urea or the UAN that you can't with the ammonia. For example, you could add a sulfur, which we so severely need and are limiting in on a lot of our crop here in 2019. And you can add it nitrogen stabilizer, you could probably split apply a few things as well. So there's some advantages there with spring nitrogen than what you can gain from the fall with the, with just the anhydrous applications. One last thing that I got to say on this nitrogen applications, I don't want to get into the nitty gritty depths and dark secrets of nitrogen stabilizers, but what I would say is a nitrogen stabilizer isn't about spending $10 more an acre to make sure that the nitrogen is just sticking around. It's about spending that money to make sure the nitrogen is there when your plant needs it. Because a lot of what I hear when I'm talking about nitrogen stabilizers or thinking about it is like, hey, I'll just put on more nitrogen. I'll, you know, I'm putting on 150 pounds right now. I'll just put on 170. But what we forget is when all the nitrogen is say underwater or all of it is exposed to 70 degree soils in November because we have a, an Indian type of a, a summer in November, that means all of it is going to be converted into that nitrate form or lost. And so we have to protect that nitrogen for when the plant needs it. Most of the time we're doing fall applications. Remember, your corn plant doesn't need it until like eight months from the time you apply it. So you got to make sure it sticks around the soil for that long. And that's where the nitrogen stabilizers definitely come into play. John, I'm just going to quick tweet out your phone number to everybody so that they can follow up with you on nitrogen stabilizers, because we might actually run out of cloud space to host this podcast if you had to give us all the details on stabilizers these days. And I'd be happy to answer any of those comments. <laughs> yeah, 507. <laughs> uh, bleep, bleep, bleep. Yeah, so the, the last piece here, and I know that, uh, you know, regionally this can be more specific when we talk about fall burn down and weed emerging problems. Certainly uh, winter perennials, uh, dandelions, man, those things are miserable to kill in the springtime if you don't get your fall weeds killed. Yep. So making the biggest thing with fall application is typically we don't get the ideal conditions, which I mean, hot, sunny, good growing conditions. We're typically under cool, maybe cloudy, high soil moisture growing conditions. So our plant, our weed health is pretty good. So making sure that you have the right adjuvant pairings for any of those fall burn down applications is critical. We got a few products, but most importantly, we got a lot of data to support the rates of those products and how we would position with each 
each one of those active ingredients. So I guess I would say make sure you're talking to an agronomist or your trusted advisor to help you make those recommendations. That's probably the biggest time that you'll see a benefit to an adjuvant is during a fall burn down scenario. So John, that's a great list of things to do when you're prepping your fields for next year. And do you have one more thing you want to add? Yeah, so I was kind of winking at Joel and giving him the one more, don't cut me off yet. <laughs> because in 2019, we had a lot of prevent plant. And oh, we, yeah. didn't, we didn't really address that. And I think there is going to be a lot of that. And how do you prepare yourself or your fields for next year with prevent plant? And in 2013, in southern Minnesota area, what we had is a lot of prevent plant. So I guess I wanted to share, like, here's what we learned from it. And I think the number one takeaway is what you did in prevent plant could be seen like two to three years afterwards. So in 2014, 2015, 2016, I could almost see to the line of certain acres that got cover crops, certain acres that maybe we didn't have any herbicides. We just kept working the field over and over again to keep the weeds out of it. So as you were thinking about your strategy that you took for 2019 to manage your prevent plant acres, I think it's important to figure out how is that crop going to respond to it. One of the biggest takeaways, if we had a cover crop, the response to starter phosphorus in the spring was probably one of the biggest things that we took away when we were rotating back into corn just because the mycorrhizae and the way they survive in the soil was somewhat disrupted with the differences in tillage and the lack of growing crop in the field. So I guess think about those prevent plant acres and make sure you're reaching out and touching bases with people that have experienced that before to get some ideas on how to manage them going forward. You know, and if you're in a region too, that, you know, how many GDUs do you think you should get on a cover crop to establish it? If by the time you're listening to this, if it's still sunny enough, how many GDUs do you think would be appropriate? Really, I think it it depends on the latitude, but for say I-80 North, I think you're going to need at least, you know, 150 to really get a decent establishment, 150 to 200. And that's going to be a stretch in the middle of September. But I mean, we've seen weirder things happen. Yeah. Maybe hoping for that summer to carry out. So I think that's a great list to prep for next year. I always say, uh, you know, if you plan for a poor year, you'll definitely get one. But if you plan for a good year, you might just get one. And so we're all about planning for a good year as we go forward here. You've been listening to the Deal with Yield podcast. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review us online or on your podcast app. And for more episodes, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and thedealwithyield.com. 